Well, you likely heard on Thursday, late Thursday afternoon, there was another shooting at Oppenheimer Park in Vancouver. One man sent to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Police were there for quite some time. And it has once again reignited the debate what to do with that park. The board, the park board, uh, reluctantly moving forward saying we might be open to an injunction, but here are a list of conditions, which some say are kind of ridiculous. What needs to be done, though, to deal with the ongoing situation in that park. Well, let's bring on Melissa DiGenova. She's an NPA Vancouver City Councillor joining us on the line now. Councillor, good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Jill. What would you like to see done at Oppenheimer? Well, I think that we have to think first and foremost about the safety of the vulnerable and marginalized people in the park. And uh, as a former Park Board Commissioner, I can tell you who was on a very contentious board, uh, myself and, and now Commissioner Cooper, um, who's, who's also a, a park board commissioner, uh, still serving, uh, serving another term at park board. Uh, he and I sat at, at the time that there was a very contentious board with Vision Vancouver holding the remainder of the seats and together we, we supported an injunction and the clearing of Oppenheimer Park, and it was for the reasons of the safety of the people in the encampment. So I, I've called on the park board several times to, to do this. And in fact, in August, I was acting mayor. And at that time, I was getting updates uh, several times a day uh, in August from our city city staff, senior city staff, some of whom had uh, left vacations with their families to make sure that they could do what they could to work with BC Housing, our homeless outreach team, to make sure that people had housing. And I understand that every single person at the time in that encampment um, was during that period of time where the park board said that they may consider injunction, um, everyone was offered housing. Some people chose not to leave the park. So now we have a situation where I'm not saying the criminal element is the people in the park, but we've heard from DPD, we've heard from Vancouver Fire and Rescue, that it's only a matter of time before a situation such as the shooting happens. With colder winter months, we knew in August that we'd be here in December and people would need to heat their structures, uh, their tents. Uh, some of them aren't even tents down there, but there's some type of shelter. And they're, they're heating them improperly. And it's not about slapping them on the wrist. It's about saying, you're going to die if, if we don't find something better for you. So I have kept, tried to compel the park board in many uh, ways. Uh, as I just said, you know, August is acting mayor. I also, as chair of the Finance and City Services Committee, as we move into a budget here, we saw a million dollars spent on Oppenheimer uh, last year. And I think those resources really could have gone farther and been stretched farther to find these people appropriate housing and to find uh, long-term solutions. But instead, it seems to me that we're plugging holes and band-aiding the solution. Uh, you know, I think the park board, their heart's in the right place. And I talk about the majority. Um, I understand that there are a couple of commissioners, uh, as well as Commissioner Cooper, who realize that this isn't the best situation. So for those reasons, I'm really calling on the park board again, uh, especially considering they've said since the budget 
and the day that we we just started discussing the and debating the budget in council, they said that they were considering a conditional injunction. Well, that was before the shooting. So if they aren't truly considering injunction now, I'm very concerned that this conditional injunction they're not they're considering moving forward with isn't real. So well, I hope they'll move forward soon. They also, in their in-camera meeting on Monday, uh, they're, they're directing staff to find an independent third-party organization to assess uh, what needs to be done at the park. Does that not frustrate you in that you don't need a third party? Anybody who looks at that park knows that it is dangerous, it's not working, it's putting people at risk. What needs to happen is people need to move out of that park and get offered housing. An independent third party to assess what? I see the Vancouver Police Department uh, and Vancouver Fire and Rescue uh, who are down there often and just looking out for people who are in the encampment, trying to make sure that their situation uh, isn't going to be that they go to sleep and they wake up to their, their tent or their structure being on fire or, you know, even worse that they perish overnight. And I, I agree with you. I agree with what you just said. I don't think we need a third party. And what if that third party, are they looking for an outcome or an answer? I think they have it. And my concern is this: every minute that we, we wait and we stand by here uh, is a moment that we're putting people's lives at risk. I can tell you, I, I've heard from people who aren't a part of the encampment that they're concerned to walk in and around that area. Uh, There are young families that live in and around that area. Some of them uh, don't have the means to enjoy other green space. There's lots of things that need to be considered here. Safety needs to be number one, but also I think the park board has to ask themselves, just as I asked them on the budget side of it, at the budget meeting, uh, is this the best way for the city of Vancouver to spend a million dollars and invest invest that sort of on behalf of Park Board into Oppenheimer Park. Because I wonder, I think if the public truly knew the other things that we're not able to fund and the Park Board's not able to fund, that they might say, you know, we do need some green space for people in the downtown east side. Also, now we're in a situation where I'm not sure where things are at. I'm not sure if BC Housing will swoop back in um, and be able to help. And it's not that they don't want to. I can't speak for them. I'd hope they would. But they they were very clear in August that as the months get colder, as we move towards December and the colder months, that they wouldn't have as much housing. They might have some shelter. They might not even have enough shelter. Bed. So I'm very concerned because now we're in the worst case scenario. And before Monday, we could unfortunately see a death. So what happens, though, if, if people are moved out of the park, say that an injunction is is received and people are moved because you don't have to walk very far from Oppenheimer to see other people camped out. There are people camped out on Hastings Street on many of the streets around that particular area. So what happens then if people are moved out of the park and they simply move up the road to Hastings or some other place where they pitch a tent? How, is that any better? Well, I think, first of all, we have to look at the at the epicenter of what we're hearing from the Vancouver Police Department, Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services, uh, what we're hearing even from park boards themselves is the issue and the criminal element surrounds that. 
So I think that what we have to do is what's best for those people and disperse them, put them in shelter. And it's my understanding that usually an injunction won't be acted on unless there's a fairly good plan or good job uh, done by the park board and the city working together to find these people, these vulnerable people, shelter. Then I think we need to make sure that we are going and looking around, uh, not just uh, in Oppenheimer, but as you said, on Hastings Street, on Pender Street, on Georgia Street, even in other neighborhoods in the city, because this does start somewhere. And how are we helping people? Um, Also, giving someone a home isn't necessarily going to make them not homeless. I think that there is a mental health strategy and approach here. And I actually feel that there's there's more resources there provincially than perhaps we had before. Um, when I was on the park board, when I was park board commissioner and we moved forward with the injunction, there was never a ministry of mental health and addictions. So I know that our partners at the province uh, have you know, said, we are ha- we will work with you. The issue that we have at the city is our hands are tied. Unfortunately, we still have to maintain um, service. And, and, and I say unfortunately because, as I said before, we've been told that these people are in the park. These vulnerable people are sitting ducks. And it concerns me um, that these the criminal element that surrounds the park, you know, um, shootings, uh, there's been stabbings, there's been machete attacks. I mean, I it I do lose sleep over this. And, you know, people have died in previous encampments in the city of Vancouver. And I've, I've pleaded with Chair McKinnon in the summer. And, uh, you know, I called on the park board again. Uh, don't wait. You can call an emergency meeting within 48 hours. And I wish that that meeting was taking place on Sunday. I think that they should move forward with an injunction faster than this. And I, I just want to make sure that, that we're keeping people safe. I also just want to note that that includes our city staff, park board staff, our first responders who go in to serve people in this park, uh, not knowing what they're going to see. I understand that it's at least four police officers that are required to respond uh, just to help uh, paramedics or Vancouver Fire and Rescue who might be on site. And that was the last update that I'd heard. So uh, obviously, if the VPD if the feels that they have to put the resources of four officers together, in to go in for a call i think we're in a dire situation i'd hope the park board could see that uh, but it seems to have have not fallen uh on them uh either they don't understand their mandate and i mean the commissioners who uh have not called for an injunction you know commissioner barker and commissioner cooper have been uh very strong and since day one along with myself have said uh, we need to move forward with an injunction and this is about the vulnerable people in the park uh, one final question, and, and I know you're a commissioner, not uh, the police department, but as you mentioned... I'm a counsellor. <laughs> a counsellor, sorry. Right. Counsellor, yeah. not the police department. Yeah. But as you mentioned, police have talked uh, about the dangers in the park. Uh, there was some talk of this latest shooting. Some of the residents of the park uh, accused the police of being very heavy-handed. But, I, I mean, there is a criminal element. You walk by there, you can see a pile of stolen bikes. You can see stolen goods. You can see criminal activity. Should police not be moving in, at least? I, I realize they can't move in and clear the park without an injunction. Should they not be moving in and making arrests based on criminal activity? 
I can't speak for the Vancouver Police Department. You'd have to ask them that question. But what I do understand from uh, attending the special park board meeting where, uh, you know, Deputy Chief Chow uh, presented uh, from what we've heard uh, publicly from the Vancouver Police Department is they, they do what is best for public safety. So if there is a possibility that perhaps uh, taking down a bike chop shop is going to create other issues and ripples of crime or is going to negatively impact safety in other ways that I can't even begin to imagine because I think they're experts in what they do, then I think that we need to listen to them. And there's a reason they're not doing this because, I mean, even if they had had the power to go in and and take out uh, part of the criminal element, they wouldn't be able to take it all out. And it may lead to other issues that I couldn't even imagine. But again, Jill, this is why I think we don't need a third party. We've heard very clearly from the experts, from Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services. I mean, that people are improperly heating their tents. I don't, what's a third party going to say? I mean, and it concerns me that park board commissioners that are supporting this aren't supporting our staff. You know, I'd be interested to hear the unions on this. Uh, how do they feel about sending their staff in there? We heard from uh, recently a third party operator that they weren't going to maintain the uh, the portable toilets around there because they had a staff member come to service them who was threatened. So, I mean, the situation and the resources that we can uh, even, even support on site through the park board, um, I mean, it's gotten to the state where people are too afraid to maintain the resources. I don't feel good about sending staff in there. Um, I certainly, uh, in August, felt very... Um, I had a lot of empathy for our staff, you know, and and their loved ones are at home hearing about these shootings. And here they are going in as well. So it's about the vulnerable people who are in the park, but it's also about the people who put their lives on the line to make sure that those people's lives are better right now. And we're hearing that it's not safe. So I'm calling on the park board uh, to, to, you know, let, it's time. Uh, and please, you know, please do this before we see someone die, as we have in other encampments in the city of Vancouver and at Occupy Vancouver. I mean, it's, it's, it's history usually repeats itself, and we've clearly seen what happens. Uh, so if there's not a quick fix. Uh, unfortunately, homelessness uh, is still very prevalent in our city. We're doing what we can to solve that at the city of Vancouver together. I'm not going to make you a promise that it's going to be solved soon, uh, but we're trying to work together here. Right. And uh, it's it's just unfortunate. I do hope they'll move forward with an injunction very soon. All Thanks, right. Jill. We will leave it there. Uh, thank you so much. So we're going to take a look at housing and the issue of supply and what it is that's perhaps leading to housing prices still being so out of reach for so many and what maybe could be done to bring the prices down to change things so when it comes to housing markets such as those in Metro Vancouver and Toronto where we see these sky-high prices. Well, Philip Cross is a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute and joins me on the line to talk a bit more about this. Philip, good morning to you. 
Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being with us. This was a, a fun or interesting read because there were two uh, points or two sides to this argument, uh, arguing uh, in if Canada should be banning non-residents from buying homes, uh, arguing for and against. Uh, you are very much saying that this is not, uh, if uh, we were doing that, uh, that would not have perhaps the intended uh, consequence or the uh, intended result. What, is, what are your thoughts about the idea of foreign ownership uh, playing such a big role yeah. when it comes to housing yeah well if uh, if the intended result that people want is to lower house prices uh i just don't think it's going to work i'm not against trying uh, I, at the end of the day i'm a throw spaghetti on the wall kind of guy uh, i don't care about theories or ideologies i just want things that work and i think we have enough evidence in already from vancouver and toronto's attempts to tax non-residents that this isn't really going to supply the uh, solve the problem uh, it allows politicians to run around and say, look, I'm doing something, uh, while avoiding the question of is what you're doing effective. And I think there's a couple reasons why the policy hasn't been effective. One is that most of the demand is coming from people in Canada. Uh, this is Canada's tried measuring uh, non-resident purchases. Depending on the market, it might be, you know, on average three and a half, four percent. Let's say it's double that in Vancouver and Toronto. Let's say it's 10 percent. That still means 90% of demand is coming from Canadians. So uh, it's not really going to put a big dent in, in demand. And it's not addressing the real supply constraints we have, which are probably the bigger problem in Vancouver than Toronto. So until we really get a good balance again between supply and demand by focusing on, their under, on the underlying problems, uh, taxing or banning non-residents is just tinkering at the edges. Uh, does it also are we are we not looking at the particular types of housing in that if somebody that's not a resident or even is a resident really is purchasing a five million dollar or seven million dollar home or condo does that really have an impact on first-time buyers or people who are just trying to get into the market um well the evidence is mixed on that i mean non-residents tend to buy more condominiums than single-family homes so uh, they tend to be concentrated in, in certain niche markets. Uh, and the other problem with taxing non-residents is it's very, if you put up enough roadblocks for them, you give them the incentive to be creative in getting around them. For example, it's well known that in Vancouver, a lot of Chinese people are buying homes by uh, using their uh, children to buy homes to get around even the 15% tax. So their child is already here studying at university. They buy a home. How are you going to stop that? So I I just don't think taxing or banning non-residents in practice is going to be very effective. What about the practice, though, that we've seen in the past, at least in Vancouver, of we've seen projects that are marketed specifically to overseas buyers. And in cases, there there might be people that live in Vancouver, in Metro Vancouver, that want to purchase in a certain building, but don't get first crack at it. Suddenly it's sold out. And even though they wanted to and had the means to, couldn't. Well, I don't know why anybody would do that, frankly. Why would you limit the market you want if uh, it's just... But even if you do, even if some projects are screening out residents, which seems a crazy way to do business to me, that just means that, you know, non-residents will move into that project, but then all the other projects will be available. The problem still is that there isn't enough supply. And yes, once you start uh, rationing supply, you're going to get quotas and things like that. The real solution is not to limit demand more, but how do we get more supply onto the market? 
And uh, I think that's where it's better to focus our energies. Right. What what do you say to the argument? And one of the arguments made uh, in the article uh, by uh, Bob Hutchings, who was uh, a contributor who was arguing uh, for restricting foreign ownership, is that that's where we see, uh, even if people are buying homes for their children, maybe they're going to university or going to other schools, but we do see, uh, in many cases, empty homes owned by people who don't contribute. Uh, I mean, they obviously pay taxes, they pay property taxes and such, but they don't live here, work here, uh, contribute to the communities. And in many cases, we see those properties sitting empty. Yeah, and you know what? What is the harm in that? You know, if if people are dumb enough to buy property and not move into it, if they want to save it for some future date, um, you know, that's that's not really the problem. Uh, it's the the real problem in the Vancouver and Toronto markets is we have a lot of demand coming from people already living in Canada or immigrants moving into Canada and not enough supply. And I keep coming back to that. That you know we can, uh, you know we can pin the blame on non-residents. It, it's very easy to blame them because there's not a lot of them, which is kind of a bit the point. And secondly, they don't vote, so they're the perfect people for politicians to scapegoat. Uh, so I'm basically saying, you know, if you want to try that, go ahead. We've already tried it to some extent with the 15% tax on non-residents in Toronto and Vancouver. Uh, it's, it hasn't solved the underlying problem. So we can step up our efforts and screen out ever more non-residents. You can do that. Uh, I don't have any problem with trying it. I just think it's very naive to think that that's going to solve the fundamental problem. And you touch on this in the piece as well. Can we walk back and see what it was, the the origins of where prices went crazy or why it is yep. that in Vancouver and Toronto, particularly in Canada, we're seeing these prices so out of control? Yeah, and Vancouver actually is the best example of that. If you look at a plot of home house prices in Vancouver, it's almost absolutely flat in the run-up to 2015. And then suddenly in 2015, it takes off like a rocket. So you look back and say, well, what changed in 2015 that would lead to this fundamental uh, change in house prices? And two things happened simultaneously. We had the oil price crash. So people who arrived in Canada looking for a job, they no longer could look to Alberta and the oil-producing provinces. They arrived in Toronto and Vancouver, and they just stuck there. So that increased demand. And at the same time, the Bank of Canada cut interest rates uh, because of the slowdown of the economy. And that did two things. It boosted mortgage demand for, amongst Canadians for homes. That was partly what the policy intended. But it had the unintended consequence, too, of severely lowering the exchange rate. And that made Canadian housing look really cheap to, to buyers abroad, particularly those people sitting in China and the United States. So we had this explosive combination of, of sharply rising demand uh, and not the uh, supply response that you would have normally expected when prices are taking off like they did. And and you talk about, uh, as you mentioned, uh, keep going back to the issue of supply. Uh, we have the conversation in Vancouver quite often about the idea of density, opening up neighborhoods to higher density. Is that, do you think, yep. where we need to be focused and looking mm-hmm. at that side of things? I think that's a big part of it in both Toronto and Vancouver. I mean, you know, you're very well aware, I'm sure, that Vancouver, more than any other city in Canada, has physical limitations on how far it can grow out. I mean, you know, Calgary and Montreal, you can just push out forever, and that's where we're seeing a lot of growth in those cities. 
Vancouver, you've got limitations of sea and mountains, so you're not going to be able to spread out. You're going to have to go straight up. So, yes, high density would be a, a big part of the solution to that. And I suppose also streamlining. We've certainly looked, even in Metro Vancouver, depending on where you are, if you're in Vancouver proper, if you're in Langley, if you're in Burnaby, uh, the the wait time and the amount of time it takes to get permits and the red tape can be astronomical in some cases. Is that something as well, and and not that you touch on it that specifically in the piece, but that's perhaps keeping that supply from coming on, from, from dealing with this? Yeah, I don't know. I'm a little, you know, being a resident of Ontario, I'm a little more familiar with the regulations and uh, uh, zoning restrictions that we put on housing here. Uh, you know, you can address better what the situation like is Vancouver. What I do know is that normally when house prices are surging like they are these days in Canada, in the past we've seen housing starts run at about 300000 when the market's really hot. These days, despite high prices, we're seeing housing starts averaging barely 200000 So somewhere along the line, something is stopping the uh, uh, supply response equivalent to about 100,000 homes a year. That's really significant. If we could build an extra 100,000 homes, especially in Toronto and Vancouver, we would solve a lot of this problem. So something is blocking the normal supply restraint. And I think the, the regulations and zoning restrictions and, you know, land transfer taxes and everything else that we've loaded on the builders is a big part of that solution. All right. Well, a big we will, part of that problem, I should say. Right. Well, we will leave it there. It's definitely uh, an interesting conversation and one that will continue. Uh, we'll leave it there for now, though. Philip Cross, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it today. My pleasure. Thank you, Jill. All right. Well, we're going to take a few moments to talk about spending when it comes to public schools right across the country. You might be surprised to see where B.C. falls in a new report, in the findings of a new report on education spending, where some provinces are seeing an increase, some seeing a decrease. And uh, taking a look at this is Jason Clemens, who's the executive vice president of the Fraser Institute, which has put out this study. Jason, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much. Uh, This study takes a look at two different areas or uh, focuses on two as far as uh, looking at education spending uh, with public schools in Canada as well. So looking at uh, spending in the past five years. So let's start with that. What were you looking at as far as the numbers and crunching those numbers with uh, spending on public schools? Sure. So one of the reasons we uh, started doing the study is that we thought there was some misunderstanding um, because people were only looking at the total amount of money uh, that the provinces um, that was being spent on public schools across the country in each of the provinces. And people uh, generally, and this includes uh, analysts and bureaucrats and others, um, were really forgetting or ignoring what we thought was a critical consideration is the number of students. Um, because just for your listeners, if you just think about it, if if you have a small increase in spending over a couple of years or five years, but the number of students that are actually getting educated is dropping, then you actually have a rather large increase per student in the amount of spending. Um, And so we look at both enrollment rates uh, and spending. So if you look at the spending increase in British Columbia over the last five years, uh, it was almost 5%. Um, that's actually one of the smallest increases across the country uh, when you look at the the, the uh, 10 provinces. However, at the same time, enrollment actually declined uh, by a little over 1%. So again, uh, there was a small increase in total spending, 
but an actual decrease uh, in enrollment, which actually means that on a per-student basis, um, the inflation-adjusted amount of spending over the last five years was basically flat. There was really no change. Um, now, that's some provinces had cuts, some had increases. So British Columbia is near the bottom in terms of uh, no change in per-student spending over that time period. Right. And, but, it, but can you look at it that, that simply in that even if there's a decrease in student enrollment, do we not need to look at the students themselves or the makeup of students in that if you have a decrease in enrollment, but you have an increase in, say, students that need uh, special attention or that need more instruction, it's, it's, not, it's not that cut and dry, is it? No, absolutely. The second step for sure, um, and there's actually several additional steps. So one would be exactly what you've said, which is, are we seeing a mix in um, students with special needs, um, um, those with learning challenges? Uh, but in addition, an important question is, are we seeing a movement in where students are getting located? So, for example, in the lower mainland, are we continuing to see families moving out of Vancouver into the suburbs such that uh, schools in Vancouver are seeing lower capacity rates, that is, lower number of students relative to how much the schools could actually handle versus schools in the suburbs that could be bursting at the seams where there's more portables and we actually need to invest in more infrastructure, uh, that is, more schools uh, or expanding existing schools. So the first step is just to understand what's happening on a per-student basis. Then we need to ask those additional questions. And where did we find then, if, if the spending is going up, where is the spending going? So over the last five years, 90% of the increase in British Columbia uh, went to compensation. Um, now, that's not just teachers, that's administrators, uh, that's management, and that's support staff. So that's the, the total compensation. Um, the, the, now, part of that is not surprising because we did have a major uh, decision in British Columbia um, to reduce class sizes, and, and that has obviously required more teachers. So um, our expectation uh, is that the increase in compensation, which really, again, it consumed 90% of the increase in spending, um, is both the increase in compensation per teacher or per administrator, but it's also about we have more teachers than we did five years ago. All right. And are we also looking that when you talk about compensation, uh, we're talking wages, obviously salaries, but does it also take a look at benefit packages, pensions, that type of thing? Yeah, it also includes uh, includes pensions and other benefits, pensions being the key. Um, the, the pensions in the education system are rather expensive. Uh, so that includes total uh, compensation. Uh, but we also, again, I, I think this is an important issue for British Columbia because we are seeing shortages um, across the province, uh, particularly here in the lower mainland when it comes to teachers. Uh, and so it does strike uh, me and other researchers that we are going to see real pressure on wages and benefits uh, for teachers because that's that's what the market's telling us, right? We That we, we need more teachers or we want more teachers, um, but the supply of those teachers is not meeting the demand. Uh, so as, I, as an economist, what that tells me is there's going to be upward pressure on those wages and benefits. It also seems like there's a, a bit of a disconnect, and it's one thing to look at the numbers and crunch the numbers that are available. But then we also hear stories from teachers who say they're still continually purchasing their own supplies for classrooms and bringing in their own paper or their own art supplies and, and the things for students. It, that it, it seems uh, like on the one hand, if you have an increase in spending, you wouldn't still have that, but we still do. 
Well, one of the questions is, uh, which is a great question, is how the money is getting distributed throughout the system. So in other words, are certain schools in certain districts uh, finding it very difficult to get basic resources because that district uh, or perhaps that school is having to spend so much money on portables, on renovations, because, again, um, they have so many students in the school that they've got to spend the money that they have in additional portables or trying to build an expansion, um, while there are other schools, again, that are experiencing a decline in enrollment who may have additional resources. And so part of it is that coordination between districts, between schools, in terms of how much resources they get and what their needs are. Uh, and unfortunately, most schools in the public system have a pretty simple formula, which is per student, um, which, again, would really uh, distort the needs of certain schools versus others, and particularly those schools where you see increases in enrollment. And how did that break down? I know we've been talking uh, about the BC numbers, but there was quite a difference. So if we look at Atlantic Canada compared to BC, uh, it seems like there's a big difference coast to coast. No, certainly. Um, BC and Quebec are the two lowest spenders per student. Um, And it's interesting that those are the two that are the lowest because both those provinces have almost the exact same system in terms of how they deliver education uh, to their their parents and their kids. Um, Both of those systems have a, a fairly plain public system, one public system, Uh, And then most of the school choice, particularly religious and alternative education, is delivered through independent schools. Um, Whereas if you look at Ontario or you look at Atlantic Canada, uh, those provinces are dominated by the public system uh, with very little, uh, very few parents going to independence or choosing independent schools. Um, The other Western provinces are kind of in between those two. So there's quite a diversity across the country, but certainly in terms of per student spending, Um, Again, B.C. and Quebec are the two lowest, well below the national average. Uh, But again, I do think there is going to be pressure on British Columbia's level of spending, um, mostly due to the fact that we have to attract more teachers to the province. Right. And and finally, how do you measure or how do you determine per student funding as far as the outcome? Because I would think parents, if you have kids in the school system, you're not going down and looking at, OK, my this amount of spending is on my kid. And that's great. What you're you're basing it on is, is your kid getting a good education? Is your kid coming home educated? Are you pleased with the amount of supports your kid has? And the, the number just becomes a number, doesn't it? No, that's that's exactly right. That that, and I'll, let me give you a different example, uh, which is the reverse of British Columbia. So, British Columbia is the second lowest per student spending. Um, however, we have traditionally done. In fact, traditionally, we've been one of the leaders in the country in terms of testing levels and education performance. And so, for for most parents, I think that's a great deal, right? That that we're not spending as much as other provinces, but we're actually getting better results. Now, if you look to Eastern Canada, and particularly if you look at New Brunswick, um, New Brunswick is one of the highest spenders in the country, but does actually quite poorly on international tests and generally in education performance. And so the question is, first, what are we spending? But then more importantly, what are we getting? And if we're spending a premium, but we're getting premium results, that's a very different situation than, let's say, New Brunswick where they're paying a premium but not getting those kind of results. Uh, So, again, I think British Columbia has traditionally been in a great position that we're not a high spender, but we get very good results. Uh, But, again, I do think there's going to be quite a bit of pressure on B.C. spending levels 
uh, again, in part, in large part, uh, because we, we just we have to attract more teachers to the province. All right. So we will leave it there. Jason, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, just before the break, I mentioned we were going to talk about a new park that is slated for what is currently a gravel lot in downtown Vancouver at the intersection of Richards and Smythe. And it is a very elaborate looking park. If you look at the artist's rendition of what is going to transform and become part of that intersection. Well, joining me on the line to talk about this a little bit more is Ian Stewart with, uh, I believe, with the Parks Department at the City of Vancouver. Ian, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, good morning, Jill. It's a pleasure to be on the show this morning. Uh, Talk a bit about this in that it was originally approved, I think, back in 2016 uh, at about $8 million. The budget itself has ballooned quite a bit. What happened in the past few years? Sure, Jill. Um, To tell that story, I really like to go back to, uh, you know, almost to 1992 when this this, uh, downtown south was rezoned to... uh, from light industrial and commercial to uh, residential to, to allow people to live closer to the downtown. And through that process, we, we, we came up with what's called a public benefit strategy. And that strategy allows amenity to keep pace with development. So, you know, uh, when we when that $8 million was, was something of an initial estimate for providing, you know, a typical green space with a few park benches. But when we got into public engagement, we really realized that the the public, the residents, the, the businesses in the area were really looking for something different and something that was going to work a lot harder for the 30,000 people that live in, in a five-minute walking distance uh, of this park. And, and so was a decision made then to, to up the process or to make it, like you said, a, a typical green space with benches and that, which I think is what people think of, of parks? I mean, this is, if you look at the picture, it looks like a, a very futuristic new age, raised platforms and plaza and such. It's much, much different, more elaborate. Sure, you're right, Jill. Uh, you know, and, and people do sort of think of a park in those terms. And, and, and what we found is that, you know, this is the last piece of, of amenity in the downtown south. And, and with so many people, I mean, we achieved, you know, 11,000 people in 2002 in the downtown south. And that number was predicted predicted to uh, occur in 2016. So we, we just had a really high growth there. And, 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 and when we met with the public on this project, they, they wanted something more. And they wanted something that was going to work a lot harder, that was going to work during the day, during the night, rain or shine. And that's where we started to realize that it's a, it's a relatively small site. It's about 0.8 of an acre. And it, it needs to do a lot more than a typical park. You know, we have a lot of amenities there. We have a washroom. We're going to have a cafe space to animate uh, the park and, and lots of flexible programming spaces. We, we're going to have a children's play area. And the raised walkway, you know, that's the kind of iconic part of the park, really allows it to be a lot safer. You know, people can overlook the space, and it, it's 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 a very uh, more you know open open surveillable park in those terms. Uh, so, when it was first approved or first brought forward, if I'm correct in saying it was a, the developer of Telus Gardens, which is just uh, kind of across down the street from from where NW is right now, uh, the developer agreed to pay the eight million dollars, which was expected to cover the costs. So, what caused it then to balloon up to fourteen million? Well, there's a few reasons for that, Jill, and, and maybe it could also say that this park is entirely funded by development cost levies. These are called DCLs and community amenity contributions. And, and these are tools that the, the city and the park board are able to use to provide new amenity for 
to keep pace with the growth in the city. And and what we realized is, you know, there was a there was a few factors that led to uh, this being a higher cost. One was the, you know, escalation of construction costs and construction materials. You know, we've been seeing in the city of Vancouver, on average, about a 6% per annum uh, inflation in construction costs. And it's also taken time, uh, you know, to go through the processes uh, to engage with our public. And uh, we did go through a value engineering exercise where we did we did realize we were coming in high, and we did go back uh, to the drawing board and work very closely with um, with our partners and contractors to to cut costs on this park, and we're able to reduce that by about two million. Right, but it's still at a price tag around fourteen million. So, is the developer paying that, or is that going to cost taxpayers? It's absolutely not going to cost taxpayers, Jill. This is, again, this is all development dollars that have come from all of the, the projects that are kind of they're held in a common pool, and we uh, we use them for a number of uh, amenities to keep pace with development. And, and I want to point out that you know the the downtown south is very underserved for park space. You know, our our goal on the city on average is is about two hectares uh, per thousand residents, and and that's about two football fields per thousand residents. In the downtown south, we have approximately one-tenth of that. So again, this park has to work really hard. It's not your typical park where we, you know, at, at, at when it's dark, uh, you know, there's no lights and no one's in it. This, this park's going to be vibrant. It's going to be safe in the evening. And, and as I said, rain or shine, day or night, you know, a lot of our researchers are telling us that people want to be able to use our public spaces around the clock. And, and this park is really going to give the opportunity to do that. It's going to be a very hardworking park. It's going to be very durable. And uh, we think people are just going to love it. Um, the the yearly maintenance uh, is around five hundred thousand, I believe. Is that pretty normal for a park, or is that a higher cost because this is such a an elaborate design? Sure, sure, it is a higher cost still, and and you know there's a few reasons for that. Um, it, it, we are in a very dense urban area, and and we want to provide a higher level of service for this park. So we're going to have uh, increased patrols. We're going to have our rangers going in there uh, a little more often than our typical parks. Again, as I said, it's going to be you know, well used in the evening, you know, can you imagine when the bars get out at night, people are going to be gathering there and it's it's going to be well used and we want to make sure that it's going to be safe and secure. We want to make sure that it's going to be clean. You know, we're realizing that when we provide public space in the city now, we have to keep pace with the service levels. And so you can imagine the sort of uh, floods of people that are going to be using this park at certain time, you know, maybe if there's an event at BC Place or at the stadium, uh, that there's going to be pulses of people using the washrooms and, 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 and using the litter receptacles. So we need to have the service levels to keep up with that. Uh, so it's going to be it's going to be higher. And, and it's also, you know, we're going to need to make sure that the horticulture is maintained to a higher level uh, because it's again, it's going to be really a year round park. And again, I'm looking at the the artist rendering of this, and it is it looks very cool with the raised walkways and the mm-hmm. different uh, parts to it. Uh, is there anywhere in this park? Is there green space if people want to say play with a dog or kick a ball around? Sure, absolutely. Uh, it's it's not. I wouldn't say that there's so much typical kind of grass green space, but what we do have we have uh, flexible programming space, Jill. And what that means is we could have some you know uh, musical performances there or artistic uh, events and. There, there is a children's play area. Um, there's lots of places to sort of do loop walking. But, you know, the walkway, the raised walkway is accessible, and it really helps us transition. There's actually a five-meter grade change from 
from one end of that park to the other. So the raised walkway really allows us to use space efficiently. And it almost, it really actually adds another level of space to the park. So it increases the real estate. So there's lots of flexible space. It's just not your typical configuration of, you know, green space. And we realized that if, if we provided a, a patch of grass there, you can imagine the conflict of users. You know, we'd have some people trying to, you know, throw the Frisbee for their dog and have some people out trying to catch some sun. So we've really tried to organize this space as efficiently as possible. And we do uh, have lots of areas to sit in the sun there. We've really tried to maximize solar exposure, which is a really important part of providing public space uh, in the downtown of Vancouver. Uh, so at this point, is it a done deal and construction is going ahead or does it still need council approval? Uh, we're very excited to say that we did receive uh, uh, park board approval on Monday night and we'd received council approval on Wednesday. So we're, we're just so pleased that uh, we've had the support to move this project forward. Uh, and, and, it, and again, it's really to provide that amenity for the public of, of downtown Vancouver for a space to connect socially and gather and, and meet new people and, and get together. And, and, and it's just we're very excited about the park coming online, Jill. When do you anticipate it will open? We're probably looking at uh, 2021, uh, early early in 2021. So it's going to take us about a year to build it and commission it. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, in, 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 the, in, in 2021, we should uh, see this park come online. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Ian Stewart, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Jill. Thanks for uh, letting us come on the show and uh, speak to this park. 911.